You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 6, Episode 20, where we interviewed renowned forensic linguist Jim Fitzgerald. Throughout the course of Jim's interview, his main focus was, of course, to break down uh, Sandy Melgar's police interrogations, uh, which he did. He got a little bit into maybe what he thought about the crime itself, but it, it was very tricky because Jim didn't have any knowledge really other than what he read online about the the crime scene itself but that wasn't his job his only job was to focus in on the interrogation and i think he gave us a good solid analysis on that and we're gonna get started here in just a second just to warn you guys mike and i have had two weeks off from recording podcasts we've been doing a lot of work but haven't recorded a podcast and i'm not sure that we still remember how to do it yeah we'll be just fine yeah we'll figure it out starting now Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, our first question comes from Kelly. Kelly says, not sure if you guys or Jim could comment on this, but what would be the linguistic and behavioral tells during interrogation of someone who did plan and execute the murder of their husband or caregiver? Well, there's not so many like tells you're looking for to indicate what they did. Uh, there are a lot of tells, so I kind of use that, that term in air quotes. But you, know, you, you leak out information is the way when, when Jim Clemente has helped train me in a lot of the stuff, he always says you, you're leaking information out. You're looking at body language, certain things you say. So I, I can't speak for Jim Fitzgerald. Um, Jim is extremely busy. We we didn't talk literally at all before recording that interview. We we exchanged a couple of emails. I sent him the links, and then we arranged the time to record the interview. And that, so I didn't even know what he was going to say or what his thoughts were when he came on. But for me, what I was looking for in the video specifically, there are certain things that people will do. From based on my knowledge and understanding, based on some things Jim Clemente's taught me, I've worked with Stan Burke a little bit, and also Jim Fitzgerald uh, that just recently. Uh, I also have a lot of textbooks on the subject. 
but there's the the limbic system in your brain is kind of like the prehistoric center of your brain. And it, it gets very complicated and, and to me very, very intriguing and interesting that your body has almost prehistoric responses to stressors when you're uncomfortable. As an example, you heard uh, Jim Fitzgerald mention in the interview that he was looking for Sandy crossing her arms over her chest. That That's one of those reactions that we look for that has to do with that limbic center in your brain. Now, of course, you have to have a baseline on that. Maybe the person is just the type of person that always stands with their arms crossed in front of their chest. But what it is, it's really interesting. They're actually people, when they get very uncomfortable, tend to, they're, they're literally covering up their vital organs. And it's something that we just do instinctively. And I think I've mentioned this before, but I'll recommend it again. There's a great show on oxygen called Criminal Confessions. And and you get to watch a lot of interrogations. And, and I use it as kind of training. Becky and I like to watch it together. And, and she's really interested in kind of that part of what I do. So you know, she'll ask a lot of questions and then I'll, you know, I'll try to explain based on what I know. And then we kind of, kind of try to predict like, is this person guilty or, or not? But that's one of the big tells is when someone will, you'll ask them a question and all of a sudden they, they, they kind of cross their arms across their body. And it's because they're literally trying to cover up their vital organs. There are also certain parts of the body that men and women tend to go to when they're really uncomfortable. Uh, women tend to touch their, uh, their neck and their upper chest. And it's just a weird thing, and it's common. And Becky hates that I know this because not not because it doesn't mean you're lying. Understand? None of these things mean you're lying. What you're looking for is a situation where somebody is very uncomfortable, and if it happens to be I'm asking you questions and you're answering them, and then I answer ask you a tough question, and then you start crossing your arms, or for a woman they start rubbing their neck or their chest. Men tend to be more the face. Uh, the mouth is a big indicator for men uh, that they'll kind of rub on their rub their mouth, rub their cheeks, rub their chin. If they have a beard, kind of stroke the chin, things like that. These are, these are indicators that people are very stressed at the situation, which could be an indicator that they're lying. And again, that's all based on examining the baseline of the person. That's why the re-technique teaches you begin the interview with an, an interview, not an interrogation. And you're doing a couple of things. You're trying to establish a baseline for their, you know, how they speak how they move, what their behaviors are. You're also trying to build rapport with the person before you start answering any tough questions because you want to see what does it look like when I ask this person an innocuous question compared to what does it look like if I ask them an accusatory question. So as far as viewing behavior, those are some of the things that you would look for. I didn't see any of that with Sandy. To me, I read her interview from the very first time I saw it and then in repeated viewings as someone who is struggling to carry on a conversation, struggling to remember. They're trying to piece things together, but it's not all coming together. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that she does have epilepsy and lupus and had gone at this point 24 hours or so without her medication. Uh, and I actually just spoke with Sandy today and I kind of asked her what kind of effects you have when you um, don't take your meds. And she says it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a seizure right then, but, you, but you'll start having auras and build up to seizures, which make it really hard to focus and concentrate. I didn't see the classic signs that I would expect of someone, uh, and neither did Jim Fitzgerald when he was watching the, watching the interview, so I was, I was happy to see we agreed on that. I didn't see the classic behaviors from someone who was intentionally trying to be deceptive. And then we have as far as, as Jim said, there wasn't a lot of forensic linguistics here, because in, in, in that field, you're usually trying to figure out who wrote the words or who is saying the words based on dialect and and, and uh, other elements of speech. 
But the other things we're looking for are, for me, was to examine what she's saying and how it compares back to the crime scene itself. A big one, and I've mentioned this before, when Sandy's asked where she took her boots off and she's trying to remember, I think oh, I put them in the living room by the TV. Uh, to me, that was an indicator of truthfulness because the TV, of course, is missing. But what she didn't do was leak out the information that maybe she knew the TV was gone. She seemed to be unaware of the fact that the TV was gone. Her body language and, and physical reactions didn't indicate. Because in order to do that, so if you're, so say Sandy is the one that moved the TV, got rid of it somehow, somewhere. And she knew that. And she's trying to tell them. So she's purposely trying to make it look like she thought the TV was still there by saying that. Well, there's, there's a lot of steps that have to happen in your brain to not just give a, a straight answer to a lie, but create a false narrative. And you would expect to see that with uh, the way she's making eye contact or not making eye contact, with her kind of crossing her arms, going to her chest, um, a lot of filler words to try to buy time. And, and you just didn't see any of that with her. Um, and then there was, you know, there was a few things that maybe caught my attention at first when, you know, for example, Sandy says, uh, she was asked about the chair. She says something about the chair being in the door. There was a chair in the way. And then when the police really push her and ask her, well, how do you know? What was the chair? How was it barricaded? And she's, I don't think she's trying to think about it. And she's like, I don't, I don't know. Well, and, and she just, she just looked at it to me emotionally exhausted because she doesn't know exactly how it was there. Well, then of course the question comes up. Why does she know the chair was blocking the door when she was on the inside when it happened? Well, but then that was easily explained by, by talking to Herman and to Maria and to Sandy herself, and that Herman, remember, is disabled. Only one of his arms work. This was a large chair, and they and, and he said he testified that it was wedged hard. It wasn't like it was just, you know, the police showed in the in the video that he just kind of pulled the the sham to tuck the the chair underneath the doorknob. But that's not how it was set up. He said that it was wedged hard under that door. He had to, he struggled getting it out from the door. And you know, and when I, when I spoke with them, that you know, during that time, of course, Sandy's saying "Let me out," and Herman is saying in Spanish. They they always spoke to each other in Spanish. That there's a there's a chair in the way. There's a chair block in the door. And he and he gets the chair out. Remember, he has one hand, so he gets the chair out and starts to open the door. And the, the door is kind of hitting the chair. The chair's in the way. And then he's with with one arm trying to move the chair, and he ends up pushing it back against the sink. So that explains why Sandy knew there was a chair blocking the door, but she didn't know how it was barricaded. But then we further look at the things she's saying again. When is she leaking out information? When, when she were in a couple of different instances, when she is telling them, uh, telling the investigators when they're talking about staging the crime scene, she said, well, how would I, I was, I was tied up in the closet. I was tied up. How could I do that? I was tied up. What you never heard her say was, I was tied up and I was barricaded into the closet which was an indicator that she didn't know she was barricaded into the closet. She knew that there was a chair outside the door, a chair pressed against the door. She didn't know it was pressed against the door, or at least she projected that she didn't know it was against the door in a way that she couldn't have opened the door if she got to it. And then, of course, like I said, we go back through and listen to, and, and I still plan on doing this episode at some point where we go through point by point the things she said and compare them to the crime scene. And her story is verified by, you know, she says, uh, they brought strawberries. I had one strawberry. Carpenter testified there was clearly, obviously, one strawberry eaten. You know, Jim had steak for dinner, and there was there was brown brown substance in his partially digested food in his stomach, and he had two or three rum and Cokes. The liquid in his stomach was tanned. There's a rum and Coke glass on the treadmill, and he has a blood alcohol level of 0.06. Little bitty details that all match up with the crime scene. 
and understand that Jim doesn't know any of that. And, and I want to make very clear because some of the questions that I've seen, and I'm sure we're going to get to, and and I'm rambling on a long time with this one, but I, I feel like this is probably going to answer a lot of people's questions about the interview. So we may have cut some of the other ones out. But but Jim was only asked to look and see. It was intentional that he didn't know about the crime scene. We had Jim Clemente look only at the crime scene without evaluating the interrogation because we wanted an unbiased view of what elements of the crime scene looked like and what it what it what it said to him. And his opinion after looking at the crime scene was that, as as he said in the close of his interview, he thinks that it is likely a terrible injustice occurred here. The, the evidence does not point towards Sandy being the one that did this based on the crime scene. So we wanted someone who was completely unbiased and didn't know any of that to just look at the interview and say, do you see this person giving you any indicators that she's lying? That's what we were trying to do with Jim, with Jim Fitzgerald. And I, I think a lot of people, based on some of the responses we were getting, were wanting Jim to weigh in more on the crime scene. And did he know about this? Did he know about this? No. We talked about a little bit of that stuff, but that wasn't. Jim's task. It wasn't Jim Fitzgerald. It wasn't what he was asked to do. He was only asked to evaluate specifically the interview. Do you see a person in that interview that is making up a story or being intentionally deceptive? Liz writes, Fitz said he didn't think it was likely that Sandy hired someone to kill Jim. Did he say what made him think that? I'm guessing it was something from the interview. Uh, He didn't say what made him think that? So I, I, I really don't have the answer to that. And we've talked about why I don't think it's likely uh, that Sandy hired somebody to kill Jim. And, and basically, even even with a very basic knowledge of the crime scene, and that's why the prosecution never even put forth that theory, is because it doesn't make a lot of sense. First of all, for Sandy to put herself through as much as she put herself through in order to do that, or very easily to have that done two days later when she was out of town, the manner of the killing, clearly this wasn't uh, you know a professional killer. I don't know. You know, there's there's so many elements of this crime scene that it, it just takes someone to dig in and really look at every piece of evidence to piece it together to understand things. I honestly don't know where Jim came up with that. I, I don't necessarily know that we could put a lot of weight behind that either because he doesn't know the crime scene. As an example, we were having a, a discussion kind of off mic or it was it was kind of in between when we ended the interview and when we did the close or, or I asked him about his website. You know, I was asking, you know, what does he think or this or that? And he said, you know, the he he said, he, as you heard him say, that he can't rule out a straight home invasion. Uh, there was nothing in the interview that indicated that Sandy had anything to do with this. And he said, but, you know, I will also say that, you know, 50 plus stab wounds is usually someone with an emotional attachment to the the victim. You know, that's usually an emotional type raise, someone with a known personal relationship, which is true. But again, that's demonstrating that the Jim doesn't actually know the crime. He only knows what he read. And and most of what anyone has read that's written that's out there was all based on the prosecution's narrative. So as we've talked about before, if Jim was stabbed 50 times, certainly that would indicate some type of overkill, some type of rage, emotional response. But as you guys know, he wasn't stabbed 50 times. He had 50 injuries, 31 of which were sharp force, only seven of which were stab wounds. And a large majority of the the sharp force injuries were defensive wounds. They were on his arms. You had the seven stab wounds and a couple other sharp force injuries on his chest. But then you have this, you know, several cuts to his hands, his arms, cuts that were associated with blunt force trauma to the front of the front of his face. You had the uh, cut wounds on the that looked like they were from hitting the molding on the top of his head and the back of the head. All those are in that number. So if you just hear he was stabbed fifty times, you picture somebody standing over somebody just repeatedly stabbing away just out of anger, but that's not what happened here. He was, he was cut so many times because it was a long struggle. 
But just, so just just as another indicator that any of these questions we're asking about what Jim knows about the crime scene is just not going to be a lot of relevance there, at least in my opinion, because in Jim, I think Jim Fitzgerald will tell you the exact same thing. He doesn't know enough elements. As he said, there's a lot more I'd want to know and I want to, I'd want to ask a lot of questions. I'd want to talk to this person or that person. He just doesn't have that information. Keeley says, was there any activity on either Sandy or Jim's mobile telephones, laptops, computers, Wi-Fi access from the time they arrived back from Los Cucos to the time they were discovered? Uh, there, we covered this a little bit, brushed on it when we covered Eric Delvin's uh, testimony. He was the computer forensics expert that testified at trial and, and generated some reports. Yes, there was activity. No, there was no human activity. And, and he explained this. If you look through the, the do- I don't even think we have these documents up yet because uh, they kind of came in that last data dump we have and we haven't sorted them all out. But in his report, there's on Sandy's laptop, there's like a, it shows like a failed login, like 11 o'clock and then, and then a successful login on the computer at 1139 or something like somewhere around there. It would have been kind of right in the middle of when they were in the hot tub or you know, we have the time of death window is kind of between 11 and 12, you know, so it looked like it was something, but he explained in, in his testimony that there was no human activity, no human did anything. And he explained that we can track everything that was done on the computer. Every, every keystroke you make was logged that he was able to look and he, and he was able to tell that these are, and I'm not a computer guy, so I don't quite understand. He tried to explain, um, their remote logins, the computer is doing things automatic or their bots or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Uh, but as he said, there was absolutely no human that did anything on that computer during that time. And as evidence, because, so, I mean, it looks strange. And, and it really, even if you think Sandy's guilty, it's odd. Like right in the middle of the murder or right after the murder or right before the murder, logging into a computer and then doing nothing, not a single keystroke. But he's able to tell that, uh, from what I understand from the lawyers who you know interviewed him and his, uh, his report and his testimony, is that you, know, you can tell that it was not someone actually physically a person logging into the computer because there was no keystrokes and nothing was done afterwards. So like, I mean, you know, the password's put in somehow and the computer turns on and then nothing, nobody went to a website, nobody clicked anything with a mouse, nobody did anything afterwards. So he described them. You can read the trial testimonies on our website where he explains it. I'm not a computer guy enough to understand why, but the, the, yeah, the, the cell phones, no activity, the computers, no activity other than those couple of, uh, uh, logins that he says were just automatic Microsoft, some I don't remember what it was, some kind of uh, automated login. But again, based on the rest of the data that he was able to collect, there was, you know, there was nothing done on the computer that wasn't a human logging into the computer. There were no keystrokes to go along with those logins. Maura says, can you give us an update on how Sandy is doing medically? Also, is she getting her medications? Yeah, Sandy's actually doing really well. We just, about an hour before recording this episode, uh, Sandy was able to call. We got to chat with her. She sounded really upbeat. Um, she said that she's she she doesn't know if she's getting all the meds she needs right now because she's waiting on a couple of different evaluations. But she said the unit that they're in, she said there's actually heat and air conditioning in there, and she's getting her her medicine. There's not a massive line for her to get her pills because it's a smaller unit. And uh, she said she's doing a lot better, both I think both mentally and medically. And of course, she's still in prison. In prison is prison, but. She's she's in a lot better shape now than she was, and and she's feeling feeling much better, and and just it was for me it was good to hear her sound so upbeat. And we're going to be hearing from Sandy soon. We we kind of got cut off today on the phone, uh, but we recorded a bit of what's going to become an interview, and then next week we're going to try to record a little more and and put out an interview for you guys to hear. So you actually hear from Sandy finally because we could hear her finally when she called this time. We'd actually hear her clearly. 
Christine says, in the past, it's been mentioned that Sandy may have seen some of what occurred, but because of the seizure, does not remember anything. Would hypnosis be an option to help get her memories if she did actually witness something? So we actually talked to Sandy about this just today. I guess there's less of an issue of her not remembering it up front, but more being confused. Whether it's hypnosis or like a cognitive interview, I think that a cognitive interview, I don't know much about hypnotism, but uh, I think that a cognitive interview might help her get a little more details. But she's got some pretty good, and and again, that's something we're going to get into as we move forward when we actually hear the interview from Sandy and I have to, I have to vet some, as anytime we get information from the person that's convicted, we've got to verify and vet anything that we're told to make sure that that's, it's all accurate. But yeah, I I guess I think that a a cognitive interview with her may be able to get us a little more detail, but she has given and gave the police much more detail than you're probably aware of at this point. Listener Debbie has a few questions regarding Sandy's bindings. First, what scientific method did Barnett use to create a, quote, replica of Sandra's arm bindings? How was the knot or knots and length determined if the bindings were cut before police arrived? There was no scientific method whatsoever. So at trial, we talked about it a little bit during Rossi's testimony, because, of course, she wanted the blood spatter expert to analyze the knots. And, and there was nothing. Even we, we even asked Barnett about it when we were in the office, if I remember correctly. But, yeah, she took the pieces, and she, there, was, there was no... There was no scientific analysis done as far as like matching up end to end and doing a fiber analysis to see which piece goes to which. She just took ba- herself and took the pieces and pinned them on the board and made what looked like two big loops in the knot and then two tails on it. But yeah, there, were, there was no scientific method. There was no expert that was just literally Colleen Barnett looking at it and piecing it back together the way she thought it looked like it went back together. And then, of course, it was made issue of that by the defense attorneys in their uh, appellate brief that we're going to start covering on Sunday that you know, she was then presenting it to witnesses asking them. And, and, and we covered this in Rossi's testimony specifically where, you know, they said, well, if she was bound like this, do you think she, you know, and she's like, well, I think she would just be able to get out because they're so big and stretchy. Assuming that she was bound if those two loops, like those two giant loops were what was used to hold her hands, not realizing that this was something that was wrapped repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly around and then tied in a knot. And then once you cut it several times, you could make it back into loops like that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's how it was together. And her next question was, was there any tool or cut mark analysis done, which we already covered, so we'll move on. Next, she says, based on the inconsistencies in Herman and Maria's statements, how can we know which item was used to bind her legs versus her arms? The truth of the matter is that I guess you can't know for sure. Personally, I'm, I'm pretty confident that it was the purple belt-like material used to bind her arms. And it was the multicolored scarf on her ankles. Uh, and that's based on, you know, Herman said that it was it was definitely the purple one on her arms. Uh, Maria seemed a little more confused on it. Remember, she came in second. And it, so Maria is the only one that cut both off. Herman only messed with the arm bindings, the purple bindings. So that's what makes me think it's very, it's pretty clear that the purple one was the one that was on her arms because Herman didn't mess with the ankles and he remembered the purple one. And Maria, I think in her trial testimony, even even said that she, you know, it was five years ago. She's a little confused about it. She seems to remember. She remembers there was the two, but wasn't sure which was which while she was explaining that how tightly Sandy was actually tied. Next, she says, assuming that Barnett is not a knot expert, did not observe the bindings, did not talk to the witnesses who did see the bindings, and presumably not a professional escape artist, how and why is she able to use a, quote, replica in court, do a demonstration in court, and offer an explanation that is based solely on her non-expert, convoluted theory of what, quote, could be within the realm of possible. 
Well, th- th- these are all things that are that are going to be covered in the that are covered in the appeals brief that was filed by the Seacrests a couple weeks ago. There's more issue in the fact that she, you know, presented things that were completely contrary to the evidence too. So I mean, there's there's a lot of this. Basically, it's whatever was allowed by you know either the defense attorneys didn't object to it or the judge didn't didn't sustain any objections. Uh, but as far as her, you know, I think that as long as she is she explained when she put the um, replica up on the the board, if she said I just put these together, if she didn't claim that it was done by an expert, I don't know. I think I think it's a pretty it's a pretty gray area. But um, to me, more concerning than putting that up there and presenting it that way is is doing things as far as like that are explaining a scenario in her closing arguments that is not just unsupported, but is completely contrary to the actual evidence that was presented during the trial. Tammy says, oh boy, have any of those lawyers ever clerked or worked on an appellate court? A 97,000 word brief is never, ever a good idea. They're lucky the court didn't accept it. The 15,000 word or less version is guaranteed to be better. Focus is required, not heft. What do you think about this, Bob? I think there was probably some strategy that went into it. That's what I spent most of the last week doing is reading that brief and starting to break it down into the episodes we're going to do to cover it. As a matter of fact, the first of that series is going to be this Sunday's episode, and I I think it's a pretty good one. There's a lot of good information in there. But what I'm seeing is, I think number one, I think it's going to be tough to condense. There's 267 pages in the statement of fact. That's the the bulk of the appeals brief. And it just it just kind of show goes to show how messed up this investigation and trial was, you know, because it's just I was reading it like, God dang, how do you how can you not put any of this in there? Like there's just one thing after another, after another, after another, after another that were mistakes that were that were violation of Sandy's constitutional rights to a fair trial and the, the investigation. And and it, I think it's going to be tricky because not only in an, is there, there a lot to talk about in Sandy's case. But on top of that, you know, they have to cite, they're not, they can't just say this was wrong. They have to cite case law for all of it. So it's, this was wrong and it's in violation of this standard that was created in state v. whatever, 1965. And then the footnotes, I mean, there's just lots and lots and lots of information there. So I know that they knew when they filed it that it was going to be over the limit. Uh, and, and knowing so, they they filed a request, an exemption, explaining why it was so long and asking for it to be allowed, of course, that was denied. I'm sure shorter is better. I don't think this was a mistake on the part of Max Seacrest. I don't think he, because because to answer the first question, Max Seacrest is a very, very highly respected, well-known, uh, one of the best in the state of Texas appellate attorneys. So he, this is what he does. Yeah, the trial was, I, I don't think he so much works as often as a trial attorney, but uh, appeals, that's in his wheelhouse. That's what he does. So there's probably some strategy there, maybe to put before the court, maybe hoping that they would read it all. And and now, of course, he has to condense it back down. But um, when you read it, it'll be up on our website on Sunday, the appellate brief. You'll see. I mean, look through it and think, what would you take out? Because you, you need them to know all of it. But yeah, they're going to definitely have to condense it. And what you'll see that the the biggest issue and the reason I think that there's so many points in the statement of fact is because the number one point of error is that he says that there was not legally sufficient evidence to convict, which is a tough burden. It's a tough standard to take before the court, basically saying that even though the jury convicted, we want you to look at the actual evidence because we don't believe that it meets the legal requirements for sufficiency. There wasn't enough sufficient evidence to convict. And that, I think, is why the statement of fact is so long, because they have to explain, look, there was this piece of evidence, 
this is why it wasn't sufficient, all supported by case law. So there's just there's just a lot to it. Listener Jill has a few questions. First, do you think the jury was prejudiced by the fact that Sandy was one of the Jehovah's Witnesses? Several in the courtroom told me that every time the prosecutor mentioned Sandy's religion, many of the jurors had a change in demeanor by the expressions on their faces. I, I have no idea. We're going to get into that. Uh, not this week, but next week, as far as what, how that was brought in during Rocio Reeb's testimony. But yeah, I certainly hope that's not the case, but yeah, I've, I've heard the same thing. Next, she says, how was the jury able to come back with a guilty verdict when everyone and their brother knows that jurors are told they must return a quote, not guilty verdict. if There is any reasonable doubt. I don't know. And again, that is this Sunday's episode. That's the, that's the contention. One of the contentions that Max Seacrest has made was that there was not enough legally sufficient evidence to convict, that there, there was, in fact, reasonable doubt. So it's, again, he's trying to convince with this appeals brief, and he's asking for oral arguments to do so. He's trying to tell this panel of judges that there was there is reasonable doubts, and let me show you why. I mean, e- even if you just look at the only juror that seems to be very vocal here is the foreman, you know, the things he said, you know, he, he's, he's gone on, on, on interviews with, on, on TV and on, the, and on the news and I think even the other podcasts. Where he said, you know, the during deliberations, the pendulum swinging back and forth, and then ultimately, I, I believe I don't want to misquote him, but I believe what I heard him say on the 2020 was ultimately the prosecution's theory is the one that made the most sense, which that is not the legal standard to, beyond reasonable doubt. Just finding that that someone else's theory made more sense than the other theory, if you even get to a point where that's your final deciding factor, that means you have some doubt. Um, but we're going we're gonna to really dig into that topic on Sunday. Now, Bob, before we close, I wanted to touch on a few things that I've seen talked about, but no one's really asked you directly. There's been some people in the Sandy is Guilty crowd that suspect that Fitz's interview was edited to shine a better light on Sandy. Now, you and I both know we don't ever edit the content of these interviews, but I was hoping that you might be able to explain why that is and how we produce these type of episodes. Yeah, so, well, yeah, of course, the answer to that is no. That is, there's no content edited out. In Fitz's case, the only editing... Uh, that was done was he he had a cold, so he's coughing a lot. So a few times we had to cut some spots out. So so basically, when Mike edits it, because Mike does the editing, uh, your biggest job is just making it sound better. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's really important to keep as much of the content in these things as possible, so that when the listeners hear them, it's not like we you know tampered with anything. Right, and we and so that's that's what we're doing. So Mike is cleaning up things like breath noises after people talk, if if somebody coughs, and we'll catch it. So like, say I'm speaking and Jim coughs in the background, we'll say, okay, hang on, let me redo that. So that's editing. And then we did get disconnected from the phone at one point while we were talking with Jim early, but that was back when we were talking about uh, the Unabomber stuff, I think. It was early in the interview, wasn't it, where we got disconnected? Yeah. And then, of course, we had to pick up and try to remember where we were at and try to blend that back together to make it sound. But that, that's that's the editing that we do. Uh, in this case, that was all that was that was removed. Other than, like I said, there was a brief conversation, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, between when we closed out, he finished his analysis, and when then we picked up, uh, where, you know, because during that was like, okay, is there, do you want me to ask you about your website, or what do you want to talk about? And he said, yeah, I guess I, I, can, I can plug my website. Uh, because again, with Jim, we didn't have a pre-interview at all. Um, and during that conversation, you know, he talked a little bit, I was asking him a little bit what he thinks about the crime scene. It wasn't part of the interview, just kind of discussion. Uh, and that's when he said he didn't really know enough about it. And he mentioned, like I said, he mentioned that thing about, you know, if there's 50 stab wounds and that could be an indicator of somebody with a, uh, with a personal relationship or somebody with, you know, a, a really emotional connection to Jim. But again, there was, I, I think my exact words to him were, I'd love to, I'd love to sit here all day and go over the stuff. Cause there's so many things there 
that if you knew more about, you probably could answer better. But he just didn't have time to do that. I mean, it was it took us three weeks to schedule the time, even just to record that one thirty minute interview. That's how this this one was edited, and just like any other one, I mean, it's just we leave all the content there. We clean up the sound, but I also want to explain to you the reason behind that. Those of you who have listened to us for a long time, you know, we have some pretty huge interviews in here. You know, we we have. You know, Jim Clemente is is a, a, a giant in the field of criminal profiling. Jim Fitzgerald, same story. He's just, he's huge. People know him around the world as for forensic linguistics and profile things like that. We've had lots and lots of very good expert witnesses on that. We've had Jim Trainum on the on the podcast before talking about false confessions. You know, lots of experts that we'll bring in. And how many of those experts do you think we can get in if? We took their interview and edited it to change what they said. That would be it. First of all, all these people are very public figures, and they would be all over the internet, and we would get sued if if we changed what one of these people said. Not just this, you know, the big names, but even even just a regular interview with any person. If we edited to try to change what they said, you know, they could sue us. They could make a huge. It would, it would take away all the credibility, and we're never willing to risk that. And again, to even even consider or accuse us of that is again to go against the mission of what we're doing here. And there's people, I'm sure, that 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 have decided that everyone that we ever cover is guilty and then that we're all, you know, scamming people here. But those of you that listen to us for a long time know our purpose is to find the truth. If the truth is that Sandy Melgar killed her husband, then we're going to prove it here. That's what we're going for. We're not trying to manipulate anything. We bring these experts on oftentimes without even knowing what they're going to say just to get the information out there because we want that unbiased view. So no, we did not edit out anything in Jim Fitzgerald's interview. No, we do not do that with anyone's, uh, and that is that's the process. As I explained, what you know, what Mike does, I don't even know how he does it. He's got a mouse with like fourteen buttons on it, and he edits with one hand, and I don't even know how he does it. Yeah, it's a good time. All right, that's going to be it for questions this week, Bob. Okay, well, thanks everybody for tuning in, and uh, make sure you tune in this Sunday where we're going to start breaking down the appellate brief. And I think it's going to be a great episode. We're covering a lot of information, and we're just barely starting to scratch the surface. So that'll be episode 21, dropping this Sunday on January 6th. Take care, everybody. See you. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Thank you to Amanda Meyer with Willow Photo and Design for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. 
You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. Like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at TruthJusticePod, and my personal Twitter handle is at BobRuffTruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at TruthJusticePod. And don't forget, we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on the case. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been truth and justice. Whew, that was a mouthful. Yeah, 14 seconds in. <laughs> Almost there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want to do the 10 second fade out, add marker, and then let's let it rip. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> I look fat in this shirt. You see that? <laughs> I should cut the sleeves off or something. That'll help. <laughs> Fuck off. All right, man. <clears throat> scratch all that. Okay, just scratch all of it after you said that's going to be for questions. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, that's it. I did it, so that's, uh, I'm going to do it. Stop. No, I'm doing the mouse. (laughs) I don't like having two mice.